I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is the final installment of our annual Advent series, The Long Winter Breaks, 2021. Well, after weeks of staring into the darkness, candle after candle of the often somber and always reflective season of Advent, it's finally time to celebrate For four weeks now, we have been participating in the waiting, so deeply familiar to generations of God's people who have lived in a broken world, the same as us, in want and in wait of a Savior. And just as the weeks of Advent participate in the waiting and longing, so tonight and tomorrow participate in the celebration that God has done something about this awful mess, that He has come to save us. In his book on Advent, David Mathis writes this, It's good for us to rehearse in Advent the anticipation of God's ancient people to renew our appreciation of what we now have in Christ. As we wait, we replace centuries of longing and yearning that preceded the coming of Christ, and in doing so, our joy in and gratitude for what we have in Christ deepens and becomes richer and sweeter. And we too live with longing and yearning for Jesus' second coming, even as our waiting now takes on a fundamentally new shape because of this first coming. For just as we allowed the grief and pain of a broken world to settle over us like a shadow, now we recognize that God has driven that darkness back in His Son, Jesus. That Jesus was and is and will be forever God with us, the hope and Savior of the world revealed in spectacularly subversive glory at Christmas. And all the pain barreling in on all sides, all the fretful anxieties of the weary world, everything that's happened to you this year, this lifetime, God has arrived in our suffering to save us. And no evil can stop the coming of Jesus because it was into our hurting world the poverty of our brokenness that Jesus arrived as one of us. And tonight we celebrate that God truly is with us, that He came to save us and that He will come again to make everything new. The wait had been a a harrowing one. Each generation of Israel looked on with anxious anticipation that a Messiah, a Savior, a Rescuer, a coming King would finally arrive. And the wait extended across centuries until the promise of the Messiah began to take on mythic dimensions, the promised King, the conquering Messiah, so desperately desired yet so entirely absent year after year in a broken world. And the people of God looked back through the Scriptures and remembered the story. The world was good until it became broken, and the great roiling seasons of darkness that brokenness compounded on themselves to such a degree that the hope promised by God all the way back in Genesis seemed to shrink and fade in the long winter practically forgotten. And all the great human longing for justice, generations upon generations of the desperate cry of billions of souls beholding a world marred by evil and screaming into a seemingly indifferent cosmos, staring into the void that stares back, This should not be until into the darkness and obscurity he came and the long winter breaks. 
There's a lot of misunderstanding that clouds the characters in the Christmas story called the Magi. To begin with, they show up in only one of the four Gospels, and Matthew never actually mentions how many of them visit Jesus. In many church traditions, and certainly in most of the nativity art, there are three Magi depicted to correspond with three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. In other church traditions, there are 12 of them. I don't know why, but there you go. However many there were, Matthew doesn't say. In most nativity art, the the Magi show up to visit the newborn Jesus on the night of his birth, but the narrative likely has them arriving much later to a house rather than a cave stable where Jesus was probably born. But the weirder misunderstanding is in what the heck a Magi is anyway. Point to the three gift-bearing visitors in your average nativity scene and ask a bystander who they are, and the answer will likely come wise men or sometimes kings because of that whole carol we have, we three kings. These visitors may have well been wise for all we know, at least in some sense, but that's not what the term magi means. And it doesn't mean king either. Magi refers to a kind of pagan astrologer known to practice magic and sorcery. It's where we get our English word magician which is pretty weird given that throughout the Hebrew scriptures, magic and sorcery are uniformly forbidden and condemned as not just evil, but as dangerous inroads to the dominion of darkness and demons. So these magi were pagan Gentile sinners who had been drawn to this new king and who came, strangely enough, to bring gifts and to fall before him in worship. And we take it for granted because these characters have become, for us, so familiar. Ornamental nativity wallpaper, part and parcel of the Christmas story. So we miss that God is up to his old tricks in the story, subverting expectations, turning our familiar pictures upside down with the great scandal of his kingdom and love. Because in that same story with the pagan Gentile sorcerers, the Jewish religious leaders And Israel's chief priests, which would have been like the Bible scholars and theologians of our day, they should have been the story's heroes. When they get asked by Herod where the Messiah is to be born, they answer immediately, in Bethlehem. They know the story. They've committed it to memory. Bethlehem. Derdoi. And yet, none of them go looking for Jesus. None of them seek him out. None of them prepare gifts. None of them arrive to worship the new king. And in Matthew's gospel, the only gospel author to note the gift-bearing sorcerers, the magi, the story goes on to document a cavalcade of undeserving, unqualified, bent, and broken people who throughout Jesus' life line up before him throughout the years of his ministry to see him, to worship him, to be healed. And all of that begins here in the Christmas story of the visiting Magi. Author David Mathis writes, they are stargazers watching for who knows what in the skies rather than looking into the scriptures. And God in his grace comes to them through the very channel of their sin. Even as a baby, Jesus is reaching out into the darkness of our evil and drawing us in. Having only just arrived, Jesus is inviting the broken and backward, the evil and misguided, the sinners, those far from God, into his presence, granting those least likely and least qualified to come before him in worship. And look, more than two millennia later, here we are. Every one of us, every member of our little family who has put our faith, our lives under the kingship of Jesus, it was Jesus who came to us in the darkness of our long winter, 
It was Jesus who peeled back the shadows, who brought forth a beacon of light, who lit the only flame of hope that we've ever known. And this is God's story. As ancient as in the beginning God created and yet as wonderfully specific and ongoing as he will save his people from their sins. And this story includes you and me. To this purpose, Jesus arrives, unexpected and astoundingly counterintuitive every step of the way, a refugee baby rather than a heavenly warrior, a peasant stonemason turned self-taught rabbi in a small obscure village rather than a royal prince born in a palace, because God is surprising, to say the least. God is subversive. And to that end, God surprises by reaching for the most hidden, most broken aspects of our stories, whether defaced by our own mistakes or by the horrible things done to us by other people, by life itself. And He repairs and restores and brings dead things back to life. He saves His people from their failures and from the collective human failure that has ravaged the world as we know it. Matthew is setting the stage in beautiful detail at the outset of his story about Jesus. This is about Jesus, and it's about you, and it's about me. For you and me, the idea of being rescued is about much more than some conceptual debt that gets lifted from our ghostly shoulders that we might inherit a home in the clouds post-death. This is about more than heaven, about more than hell. This story is about being rescued in the here and now and in the future. Freedom and what Jesus calls life to the fullest. And Christmas is a window into that future, the gentle flicker of hope that will one day become a glorious flame to envelop and redeem the entire cosmos. It has to do with the story of the Bible, the way it ends in something called the renewal of all things. When Jesus returns, death is undone, sin and suffering and evil are destroyed once and for all, and the loving goodness of God covers every square inch of the universe. And we are, quite obviously, not there yet. But... We do see glimpses of that future in the here and now. We see kindness and mercy and self-sacrifice and reconciliation, generosity, even peace on earth, little corners of the earth anyway, but we see it just the same. Hope is still there, and from that hope springs a wonderful anticipation. For our hope on a coming day will be brought to fruition, and we know this because of Christmas when the awful thorns and brambles of sin and suffering will be pulled up from the world by the roots, and Jesus, the mighty King, God with us, will crush evil and death and triumph and sin and evil and suffering and death shall be no more. We know this because of Christmas, the advent of hope. But for disciples of Jesus, hope continues to glow like a candle which cannot be snuffed. We gather around its gentle flicker as a reminder of hope the promises of God. You know, twice in the gospel or in his gospel, Luke mentioned that the newborn baby Jesus was, like most babies, swaddled at birth. And this practice was as practical in the first century as it is today. Exact same thing to provide a helpless infant with a sense of warmth and security and keep their crazy limbs from flailing around so they can actually sleep. There's actually nothing noteworthy or new then or now about swaddling babies. It's just what you do with a baby. So the question is, why in the world, in a time when both ink and papyrus were precious and scarce, why would Luke mention so common a detail twice? We don't know for sure, but theologians speculate that it might be because the implications are staggering. 
Emmanuel, God with us, the creator God incarnate, could not control his own limbs or lift his own head. Later, the Apostle Paul would describe this process as God emptying himself. But we often forget how incredibly sacrificial such an emptying must have been. God was swaddled. And this swaddled God was not born in a palace of royalty, not as a golden gladiator, but he was born smeared in blood like all of us, born to poor teenagers in a cave surrounded by livestock and flies and the stench of manure, overlooked by religious dignitaries, but worshipped by poor shepherds and Gentile pagans. Why, why, oh why, would any god or king be deliberately reduced this way? Because this is the world that we know. This is our broken world of sin and suffering and death, and He came to save us. The gift-giving aspect of Christmas sometimes gets a bad rap, and there's lots of reasons why. Excess, materialism, consumerism, of course those things are all relentless evils, but gifts in and of themselves I think are wonderfully appropriate for the season. Jesus came for us. The bumper stickers have long argued Jesus is the reason for the season, and I get, I get why, but it was God's love for us that brought Him low to the manger. He came to save us, and He has. Repeat the sounding joy He has. No suffering, no hardship, no sickness or death can repeal the promise, the hope of Christmas that rings out like church bells over centuries of our waiting and hope. He came to save us, and He has. Repeat the sounding joy He has. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.